ushers to go out into the hallways and byways and compel them to come in. That'd be great. Thank you. It's a joy to be able to gather together with God's people. So glad you're here today. We have a couple special, couple special guests I wanted to welcome this morning. Some, uh, some, some uh, previous members are back. I almost said old members, but they might take offense if I said old members. Some, at least we have one old member, and the rest are previous members. Um, we are glad to have also some, some, some brand new members to the church here too. I think I saw Kaylee Pactor in the back somewhere. I think it's her first Sunday here. We're, um, oh, she's a nursing mom. So well, welcome to Kaylee. Um, if you see the Pactors, please welcome their new baby. We're glad to have them. Um, I also saw Rob and Amy Garland. Are you in the, in the building this time? Are you here? Nope, they're in the hallway. Okay, excellent. Well, welcome the Garlands if you see them as well. And then uh, Scott Triolo. Scott, where are you at? Excellent. Scott's back from Scotland, um, here with us for the weekend. He's actually in the room. So, And then, last but not least, we have a couple of special guests, uh, surprise guests here this morning, who were the founding members of this church. And I just wanted to say a special welcome to Jim and Corey Britt. It was really the Lord putting this church plant on Jim's heart is the whole reason why we have a church today by God's grace, by, by him sending Jim. Thanks for coming. Thanks for planting the church. Thanks for starting us. And um, thanks for, for entrusting the church to us. And uh, we're so glad to hear about how things are going for you in Miami and excited to have you here this morning and couldn't be more grateful for you and for all the many years of investment. Jim was here for... Oh gosh, how many years now? Eight years? No, 11 years. Oh, nine years, sorry. I can't, I can't, I can't. Can you tell I need glasses now, Jim? <laughs> so, <laughs> I've just hit that stage when I, when I can't do without them, but I can't see my notes if I have them on. So, um, for nine years, and so we are very, very grateful to God for you. Thank you for being here too. Turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 4. We're going to be reading a, a large passage of Scripture. It's Really one account that Luke is giving to us. It's a kind of a compare and contrast account, if you will. He's showing us what life in the early church looked like and what it meant to live in light of their belief in Jesus Christ. So turn with, your, with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 4, verses 32. You're reading down through 5, verse 11. This is God's word. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard of it. 
The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to it, how is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately, she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your word, which is profitable for our instruction. God, thank you that these verses are not throwaway verses, that they are meant not only for the people who Luke was writing to in that day, but they are meant for us today. God, thank you that we're meant to learn from the words that you have written. How how should we live in a manner that's pleasing to you? What does it look like to, to live out our lives trusting in you, relying on you, worshiping you? Father, I pray that you would use these words to, to convict and to encourage, to edify, to build up our body, that we, might, that we might exemplify your church, that you might purify us as your bride, that you might make us more into your image. Thank you, God, that that's the purpose that you've called us all to, that you're conforming us into your image. And thank you that you use scriptures like this to do that. I pray that you would soften our hearts. Open our minds, Lord. I pray that we would hear from you and respond to you in faith, Lord, because of your great grace. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Well, my parents came to faith kind of accidentally in 1976. They were attending an Amway conference of all places. They weren't expecting to go and learn about Jesus. They were going to learn about how to make a quick buck. My, my dad had gotten out of the military, and they didn't have much money, and they're going to learn how to make a quick buck, and they heard a guy speak, and, and the guy's name was a man named Jim Baker. Some of you might know that name. If you're older than 35 or 40, you may know that name if you've been a Christian for a while. Um, if you're under that age, you have no clue probably who that, that name is. And Jim Baker was a man who, I think when he began his ministry, was genuinely pursuing the Lord. But in 1987, just about 11 years after my parents became Christians, it was discovered that he had been having sexual relations with a secretary. And it was discovered he was living a lie and deceiving many. And he ended up going to jail for 24 counts of fraud and conspiracy. He actually was convicted of 45, but the, the, other, the other counts were dismissed later. But what stuck was the fraud and conspiracy the effect of that is many people were disenchanted, and, and many turned away from the faith because of the hypocrisy that was demonstrated. And it hindered the message of the gospel, though God's message is not thwarted or hindered. It, it, it hindered man's communication of that message. Many people were disenchanted because they thought that Christians are all hypocrites. They're all fakes and frauds. They're all deceivers and liars. You know, since that time, there's been handfuls, well, probably, that's, that's probably a low number. There have been countless numbers, really, of scandals and times when Christian leaders have been found to be deceitful, found to be liars, found to be hypocritical. Each time, hypocrisy has not been just damaging to the lives of those leaders who were discovered, but it was also damaging to the lives of those who followed them and placed their trust in them. We're not, we're not immune to scandals today as well. But in each case, the scandal that was revealed, if you go back and you look at even the case of Jim Baker and Jimmy Swagger and people like that afterwards, God used that to actually purify His church. God used that to convict people that we didn't want to be like that. We don't want to be hypocrites. We don't want to live that way. We want to live in a manner that's pleasing to God because that's not who God's called us to be. That's not reflective of the good news of Jesus Christ that's actually freed us and delivered us so we don't have to live that way anymore. Each time, God has reiterated through those scandals, through all the countless scandals 
across all the ages, that, that authentic belief in Christ and holy living are, are taken seriously. He takes them seriously. And he doesn't approve of faking devotion to him. God is, is not all about the externals. God, God wants us to worship him in spirit and in truth. And so we see really in this account, it's, it's very helpful. It serves us to how do we deal with, how do we understand deceit? How does God view deceit? How does God view worship to him? What kind of worship, what kind of life is a life that God is pleased with. What does it look like to have authentic faith in Jesus Christ and to live that authentic faith out genuinely in a way that is pleasing and worshiping God? It's a serious thought. When you read a passage like this, it's a, it's a sobering passage. This, this is not one of those passages you just fly over. This is one of those passages you read and you take a double take. You're like, what in the world? I thought God was a God of grace. Look, God's a God of goodness and kindness and mercy, and this is post-Jesus. This is, this, is, this is New Testament Christianity. What's up with this? These kind of passages make you take pause, and I believe that Luke and really the Holy Spirit, God, put this passage and these types of passages in the New Testament to show us that God still takes, still takes holiness seriously. He still takes living, authentic lives, believing in Christ seriously. It's a serious thought for us because we're all tempted to deceit. If you're honest with yourself, we're all tempted at times where you want to be a hypocrite or you're tempted to be a hypocrite, to live in a way that you know God has not called you to live. I lived, I lived personally for very many years calling myself a Christian as a teenager and young man, while I was lying and deceiving, living no differently from the world. The question for me is, why was I not struck dead like that? Why did, why did, God, why did God put up with all my stuff? And, and actually, frankly, why has God put up with all my stuff since? All those other times when I really knew better, and I've still lived in a hypocritical way, deceiving, lying, fearing man. Why did God put up with me? Well, I I think the answer is is really, and we'll see this in in the coming weeks as well, but we've already seen it. It's what Peter has experienced. See, Peter, he was a deceiver as well. He knew what it meant to deceive. Peter wasn't being self-righteous. This was the Holy Spirit using Peter to speak to Ananias and Sapphira. He knew what it meant to be a deceiver, a liar, because he had just done that a few weeks earlier. They said, aren't you one of Jesus' disciples? Aren't you one of his followers? Didn't we see you with him? And he lied three times, denied that he even knew Christ. But I think Peter understood now, and by God's grace, I've, I've, I've grown to understand his, his great mercy and his great grace. That his, his forgiveness is, does not depend upon my merit. That he doesn't accept me based on my merit. That, that God accepts me based on the merit of Jesus Christ And that's what motivates me now to live a life that's not deceitful, that's not hypocritical, even though I fail at times, even though I'm still tempted to fear man or to to give in to peer pressure. But I'm relying on God's grace to transform me and continue to teach me to say no to ungodliness and to be devoted to living for Him. And I believe that's what passages like this are for. It's, It's not to say that our merit or the way we live earns God's favor saying no in light of God's favor don't live lives that make light of God's grace but live lives that are authentic lives believing in Jesus Christ and living for him in everything you know I think the church today needs to be called to this kind of hard message at times because we can get really comfortable we can get really complacent It's really easy to live the Christian life in 21st century North America, isn't it? It's relatively easy. There's relatively little pressure. You can be a nice person on the outside, and yet you can be faking it on the outside. And God is saying through these verses, He's not okay with fakes. He's not okay with faking belief in Him. He wants worshipers who worship Him in in, in truth and in spirit. These passages are sobering, aren't they? I don't know about you, but I, I was sobered as I was preparing for this. I'm thinking, God, I don't, I don't even have a right to bring this because I'm so aware of so many areas where I continue to be hypocritical because I, I know that I'm not supposed to sin against my spouse or my kids, and yet I still continue to get angry. 
I, I, I know, Lord, what you're calling me to do. In so many ways, I see that I fail. Well, that's, that's not what this passage is meant for. It's not to produce condemnation, but it is meant to produce a sober desire to live our lives for him unencumbered by the sin which so easily entangles. It's meant for us actually to experience freedom. You know, you know what? Sin, it, it chains us. It keeps us in bondage. When we submit ourselves again to sin, we submit ourselves again to slavery. So this passage and passages like this are meant to actually free us so we don't have to be slaves to our sin any longer. And so we can respond to this passage with joy, although it's sober, because God intends for us to say, I don't want you to, I don't want you to have to try to be a fake anymore. I don't want you to live for externals and to play church. I want you to be freed from that. I want you to be free to live for me. In this passage, I think the main idea that, that we're going to see, the main idea we're going to explore, really, it's just that authentic belief in Jesus. How is it seen? Authentic belief in Jesus that's seen in spirit-empowered devotion. In the previous verses, we saw in Acts chapter 2, he talked about what does it look like to live the Christian life. And it, it talked about in Acts chapter 2, 42 to 47, how they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. They were devoted to care. They were devoted to fellowship and to breaking the bread. They were devoted to meeting from house to house. They were devoted to, to meeting in the temple as well. And so Luke has really been showing these different vignettes of what does it look like to live out authentic belief in Jesus Christ in this New Testament community. And so he's showing us that authentic belief in Jesus that's seen as spirit and power devotion. If you remember from last week, the disciples had prayed after they just had experienced some severe opposition. They had prayed together, and God had answered their prayers, and He filled them with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak the Word of God with boldness. Now, look down in your Bibles with me, please. In verse 32, Luke describes now what do these Spirit-empowered people live like. And so in verse 32, he says, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was in his own, but they had everything in common. You know, it's important to note that, yeah, this is not talking about Christian communism. At the same time, it's important to note that this really does apply to us today. There are some principles here that we need to see. Let's not gloss over these verses. And there's an important phrase here at the very beginning, and it says, those who believed. Those who believed. That's what the, the difference is here. Those who believed in the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. Those who placed their faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins and new life in Him. They were transformed to live differently. It was because they had genuine, they had authentic belief in Jesus Christ and it transformed everything about who they were. It transformed their entire lives. From Acts 2, 5. We know that those who believed in Pentecost, it says, they were composed of devout men from every nation under heaven. One day, I hope that that's the case, that we can look around in this room and see that we have every nation under heaven represented here. But think about what that represented there in that day. They were all Jews, but they were a multinational congregation. The full number of those who believed, there were, there were probably somewhere around 5,000 or more people in the church. It, because it talks about 5,000 men responding in, in the last two accounts, if you add them up. So that's, there's probably closer between five and 10,000 people in the church. This was a multinational national congregation. They had diverse backgrounds and social customs, the different food preferences and fashion choices and manners and norms. In our own melting pot of a nation, it can be difficult for people of different backgrounds and skin colors and fashions and customs to go along. Last night we got to enjoy some fireworks in Greer, um, or Greer, and it was, it was a great time. Actually, they put on a phenomenal fireworks display. One of the, the coolest things there was sitting in the hot spot gas station parking lot was that, that there were people from so many diverse backgrounds. There were people who were very diverse in preferences and fashion choices and manners and norms. I was thinking about how, how neat it would be if, if the gospel was carried to all those people. You know, often there's a tendency to segregate based on our differences, but that's not a gospel tendency. That's, that's, not, not, that's not the message of Jesus Christ. 
The good news about Jesus, it brings people together from every nation under heaven, united in their belief in Christ. What unites us is not the color of our skin. What unites us is not our food preferences or our fashion. What unites us is our belief in Jesus Christ. It says they believed. And those who believed were of one heart and soul. That's what made them of one heart and soul. It wasn't because they all got along perfectly or they all liked each other or because they, they all liked falafel. I love falafel. You may not. I won't condemn you for that bad food choice. But, but we have unity, really, in our belief in Jesus Christ, the resurrected Lord. Back in the Middle East, when Acts was written, they faced factions and separation based on ethnic and cultural differences. But the power of the gospel we see here is uniting them early on in, in their belief in Jesus Christ. And and then what we're going to see, Luke, what's Luke driving home? What's he trying to get us to see? He's trying to get us to see that authentic belief in Jesus Christ, it has effects. Authentic belief in Jesus Christ, it has effects. And we're going to look at really two effects of authentic belief in Jesus. And then at the latter half, we're going to look at two effects of fakery, of fake belief, if you will. And the first effect that we're going to see of belief, of authentic belief in Jesus Christ, is that authentic belief in Jesus is seen in unity. If you truly are believing in Jesus, the resurrected Lord, that will be seen in unity in His body. Back in 1989, some of you were alive then, Phil Collins had a number one hit song. It was called Two Hearts. And the course went something like two hearts living in just one mind, beating together till the end of time. You know it, two hearts living in just one mind, together forever till the end of time. It's kind of a sappy sentiment. But I think it, I think it hits at some desire that we have. We have a longing in our hearts to, to be united, to be together forever, to experience that kind of closeness, that kind of oneness. But that kind of closeness and oneness is really a fallacy. For one, we're not going to live forever as married couples, we're not going to be together in a relationship, and it's not two hearts living in just one mind. And if you've ever been married, if you are married, let me tell you that although we are one in Christ, it's not two hearts with just one mind. Sometimes it would be way easier that way, it would lead to less arguments, but this is not reality at all. But I think it expresses really a desire for us to be close, a desire for oneness, a desire to be united. And that's why it was a Billboard number one hit in 1989, as crazy as that sounds, because the tune is really awful. But it, it, it kind of hits to a desire we all have for closeness, to be united. But that kind of forget, forever oneness, that together forever till the end of time, that can only be found in Jesus Christ and through Jesus Christ. And true unity doesn't come from trying to have a deep and close relationship with other people. And so maybe you're thinking, I just want unity in our church. And you're frustrated because I'm trying to have deep relationships. I'm trying to have close relationships. And I feel like they just aren't happening. Something's wrong. There's no unity in this church. And I would say, no, our unity is actually in our belief in Jesus Christ. Because of that, we have unity. And so we're called to live that out despite the differences in whether people respond or not. We're to say, how do we live out who we are in Christ? Unity doesn't come from being in the same organization together. Just because you're in this room, just because you are officially a member of Redeeming Grace Church does not mean that you have unity. What A.W. Tozer once said, it's insightful and also a little comical. He said, 100 religious persons knit into a unity by careful organization do not constitute a church any more than 11 dead men make a football team. Just because you're in this room doesn't mean you are experiencing Christian unity. Unity comes through authentic belief in Jesus Christ. I like A.W. Tozer continued that in The Pursuit of Holiness of God, Pursuit of God, and he says, Has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos, I love this illustration, 100 pianos all tuned to the same fork are automatically tuned to each other? Have you ever thought about that? They are of one accord by being tuned not to each other, but to another standard to which each one must individually bow. So 100 worshipers met together, each one looking away to Christ, are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be were they to become unity conscious and turn their eyes away from God to strive for closer fellowship. 
What he's saying here is that our hearts need to be tuned to a common belief, a common authentic belief in Jesus Christ, and that results in our unity. Unity in the church, the effective authentic belief in the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ, and there's something else amazing that we see in this passage. You see, the text tells us that they were of one heart and one soul. They were of one heart and one soul. How do you get that with almost 10,000 people? They were of one heart and one soul. Their belief in Jesus Christ so deeply transformed them, so deeply affected them that they were united of one heart. They They had one motivation, if you will, and it was to live for Jesus Christ and everything. One heart. It speaks to the kind of the core driver of who they were. And they could say that they had one heart, one motivation to live for Jesus Christ on the mission that he had called them to. They had one soul. They had one way of thinking. They were all together united in who Jesus had called them to be and the purpose that he had given, the mission that he had put them on. They weren't self-motivated here any longer is what Luke's telling us. Instead, they were united and shared a common unity in the Spirit so it could be said that they had the same core motivation to live for Christ as disciples and witnesses, to live for His kingdom and not their own kingdom. And really, if you look at Luke's theology in the book of Luke and in Acts, you can see that Luke is all about the kingdom of God and, and how in the book of Luke, Jesus has come to bring the kingdom. And now in the book of Acts, God is fulfilling His plans to build His kingdom on the earth. And so they are seeing themselves as a part of God's plans that are un. Hindered. That's the the theme we've been talking about in the book of Acts. God's plans are unhindered because Jesus is building his church. Jesus is expanding his church. He's expanding his kingdom as he empowers his people by his spirit, despite all opposition. And that's even the opposition of our own hearts. These people in the book of Acts, they were so affected by God's grace through Jesus Christ that they lived as if their possessions were not their own. Boy, that's a hard message. It's a message we need to hear, I think, in our, in our materialistic cultures that we, are, we assume that what God has given to us is for us. Now, this isn't, this isn't saying you need to give up everything. Now, some may be called to, but, but what it's saying is don't, don't hold on, don't grasp so tightly as if the things you have are just meant for your good. They're meant to benefit those in community. These people were so affected by God's grace. They lived like their possessions were not their own. But it says something else. It doesn't just say they lived like that. It says they had everything in common. What does that mean? It means they shared their possessions for the good of the community. They, they shared them as if it was common property, even though it wasn't. God had called them to himself. They understood this. They understood that God had called them to himself, that God had called them to a new community And they lived as if they didn't belong to themselves any longer. No, that's a message we need to hear. That's how they lived, as if their possessions were not their own. They they realized that they were not their own. So therefore, everything they had belonged to God and was really to be used for His glory and for the good of His church. So look at verse 33. It says, And with great power the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. I just want to make a little side note, as I mentioned before, the book of Acts, it mentions the resurrection of Jesus Christ more than any other book in the New Testament. It mentions the resurrection explicitly over 11 times. That's more than double what any New Testament book mentions the resurrection. Why is that important? Because the the New Testament The New Testament message, the message that the believers in the book of Acts understood was that their Jesus was a resurrected Jesus. Jesus was alive, and he was ruling, and he was reigning, and he was active, and he was actively involved in the church, and he cared about their lives and what they did and how they lived, and they lived in light of that. And I think that's what enabled them to see that really all their lives would be lived as worship, and so their possessions were not their own because they realized that if Jesus is reigning and ruling, he owns everything, and I'm to live for him because he gave his life for me. Since the resurrection is true, then his kingdom is worth living for and worth giving everything for. Evidently, the early disciples understood that, and it says that great grace, or abundant grace in some translations, I like the original word, it's actually mega grace. 
mega grace was upon them all. You see, as they lived for Jesus Christ, they lived in light of his resurrection, they lived for his kingdom, God showered them with his favor. And may that be said of us, that we continue to abound and have mega grace as we live in light of his resurrection, live for his kingdom, and live in a way where we don't consider what we have as our own, but to be used for God. And then look in verse 34 and 35, if you will please. It tells us what living for the resurrected Christ with one heart and soul looked like. And Luke explains it. He says in verse 34, There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet and was distributed to each as any had need. What's Luke getting at here? He's getting at the fact that authentic belief in Jesus is care for people. That's her second point, is that authentic, the second effect really of authentic belief is that authentic belief in Jesus is seen in care for others. It's seen in care for others. Jesus said that you'll know they are my disciples by their love for one another. He also said if you, if you say you love God but hate your brother, that the truth is not in you. And so authentic belief, it's seen here in care for others. These early disciples have been transformed by the resurrected Jesus. They were so full of grace and understanding of who God had called them to be that it overflowed in care for each other, and they made sure that none of them was needy. Think about that. That is pretty astounding. Think about our church. Think about the Christian church today. Think about your community. Think about your fellow believers. Do you know anyone in need? Back in Deuteronomy, God had commanded the Jews in the Old Testament to provide for those in need. And unfortunately, it it, it actually never happened in the Old Testament. They never lived up to the commandments of God. But what we see now in the New Testament here is really a fulfilling of that Old Testament command, not by duty, but in response to God's grace. And so now, in response to the grace of God, the New Testament community is living out what the Old Testament people never did. What a great privilege that we can fulfill the purposes of God as we respond to His grace and live in light of the resurrection and authentic belief in him, that we have an opportunity to, to ensure that no one is in need. That's not the responsibility of the state. They were not so attached to their possessions that they saw the needs of their church community and ignored them. They saw people in need and assumed that God had given to them so they could be a blessing to those in their midst who were needy. And their love, it was motivated by a common heart. It tells us it was motivated by a common heart, a common soul, a common mind to live for the kingdom of Jesus Christ. But their love wasn't just thought, it was action and it was carried out. And they sold their lands and homes and brought proceeds of what was sold. Now, this is not everybody because we know from history that really only about 4% of the entire area in Judea was considered upper class and only 7 to 10% um, of the entire population would have been considered middle class and would have owned land. So here you have less than 17% of the entire population even has something to give. But I think there was a heart. And so how can Luke say that everyone sold? Well, those who did didn't assume what they had was their own. And even those who had little lived in a way that they thought, how can I live not assuming what I have belongs just to me? But how can I use this for God? Because He has given me everything. You know, when you read your Bible sometimes, it's, it's really important to pay attention to what's not said, too. I want you to notice something in these verses that's not here. Something that's not in these verses. It doesn't say the apostles commanded this. It's nowhere present. Nowhere present is the apostles teaching that they were required to sell everything and live this way. Not mentioned. Doesn't say that Peter made some heavy-handed papal suggestion that if you really are a Christian, you're going to do this. Doesn't say that. It also doesn't say that Christians everywhere for all the ages are now meant to mimic exactly what they did in the New Testament. And, and everybody is meant today now to sell everything we have and go and do what they do. It doesn't say that. But we still have this passage here. We have it for a reason. This is not a commentary on government, that the socialism is always the way to go. It's not an example of the fact they were living in light of the 
I mean, it's an example of the fact they're living in light of the resurrection of Christ and that they knew that he was alive and ruling and reigning over his kingdom. And they were living for his kingdom, not their own. What is this? It's an example of the kind of life change, this radical life change that takes place when people don't live for themselves any longer, but for the mission that God's called them to as disciples. You know, as a church, our mission is to be disciples of Jesus Christ. Why is that important for us to identify ourselves there? Because it shapes everything. Or at least it should. It's meant to shape everything. If we understand, if we grasp who we have as our Savior and who we're following, it's meant to shape everything. Luke gives this really as a snapshot to show us that the early church, they were, they were a self-sacrificing church because they were living for Jesus and everything. They understood their identity in Christ. They knew in whom they believed. Do you know in whom you've believed? Do you know he's the resurrected Jesus? That he is he's bringing his kingdom and that he has forgiven us and he's redeemed us and he's made us one with him. And now we're not our own any longer. Luke gives us a compelling picture here of what, of what these people in this day were living for. But it was meant to confront the reader in Luke's day. And I think it's meant to confront all of us today as well. It's not meant for all of us to go and respond and sell everything that we have. But it's meant to challenge us to think, am I living an authentic lifestyle? Am I living authentic Faith? Am I living in a way that, that demonstrates that Jesus owns it all? All to Him I owe. I think this passage is meant to shake the reader up. It's meant to make the reader marvel too. It's meant to make us say, how am I living? Why don't you ask yourself that today? I, I was asking myself this as well. I was, that's why I was terrified to preach this message today. It's like, Lord, don't strike me dead as I preach. But thanks be to God that that's not what the passage is talking about as well. It's not that God kills all hypocrites. There would be no one in the room. But it is meant to make us say, how am I living? And do I understand what God's calling us to? The kind of holy living, the kind of lifestyle of worship that lives for Him. The kind, what does authentic belief look like? How do I view my possessions? How am I living in the light of the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Do I view what I, I've been given as just for me or is it to meet or help the needs of others? Some hard things to ask ourselves, aren't they? It's hard for you to evaluate yourself and confront yourself and say, how am I living? Am I living honestly? Am I living with integrity in light of who I say I believe Jesus is? You have to be careful at the same time when you're asking questions like this. Careful that we're not being legalistic or Assuming that if we're living this way, somehow that's what brings pleasure and, or earns favor really with God. All favor with God has already been earned on our behalf and we have all favor with God. And I think the early church got that and that's why they live so radically. We need to ask ourselves though, if any area and any possession is off limits. So you might not have to give up anything. God might not be calling you to do that. What you have, you might already be using for Him and I commend you for that. But we need to ask ourselves soberly, is there any area, any possession in my life that is off limits to God and that I don't want God to, I don't want to hear from God about using for His purposes? I need to ask myself, we need to ask ourselves, are we overly attached to our property and possessions? Are we, are we willing? There's a heart here. It's not that you almost go and give up, but there's a heart here. Are you willing to live for Christ as if He is your all? It's kind of living, though. It's a matter of the heart. It has to flow out of worship from God. How do I, where do I see that? Well, I see the previous passage. If you look in, in Acts 2, 44 to 45, it says, all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. So what we see here in our passage in Luke, in Luke 4, he's, he's, he's spelling out what he already has summarized in the beginning in Acts 2. So it says in Acts 2, all those who believed were together and had all things in common. They began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. And, and it said... Prior to that, 
why, why they were doing it. It said because everyone kept feeling a sense of awe at what God had done. That's the motivating factor is they were experiencing awe that God would save them, that He'd make them a part of their New Testament community, that He would give them His grace, that He would forgive them. They were in awe. And it says they were praising God and all that they did. And so they're living like this. It wasn't to earn, but it was in response. It was a response of praise. As Luke said in Acts 2.47, that they were praising God in how they lived. And the result was that they had favor with all the people and God added to their number those who were being saved. And now Luke is showing us how this early community that God used, how they, they powerfully lived. But he also wants us to avoid the trap of just parroting their behavior. Where do I get that? Well, he wants us to see that it's not a matter of mere externalism. Where do you see that? Well, he's going to give us a contrasting example here in just a moment. It's not a matter of having a performance orientation. He is not saying, God's not saying, Luke's not saying, the Holy Spirit's not saying to you today that just go and do exactly what they did. Why? We see the example of Barnabas. If he just stopped there, you might be led to believe that, but he didn't stop there. He gave us a contrasting example and says, this is not just about externalism. This is not behavior. This is not legalism. This is not about parroting. This is not about dressing a certain way whether you wear a chai to church on Sundays. You see, these two men, these two sets of people, Barnabas and Ananias and Sapphira, they both essentially did the same thing, didn't they? They both sold their property, they gave it to the apostles, right? On the outside, it looks the same. But one sacrifice was acceptable to God, and one kind of sacrifice was deadly. Let's look at verse 36, if you will, in your Bibles, please. It says, Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostle, by apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Joseph was so obviously affected by God that he was known for being a man who was an encourager. And let me just take a pause for a moment. If you have been affected by God's grace, if you have authentic belief in Jesus Christ, I think it's also going to be seen in you being an encourager. If you understand the grace of God, you're going to want to give that grace of God and encourage other people. If you are not an encourager, if you're primarily a discourager, a complainer, someone who, who nitpicks the things that they don't like about the people around them or the spouse, I, then, I, then I think you don't understand the grace of God adequately. But Barnabas did. He was actually so understood the grace of God that he was called a son of an encouragement. And, and in those days, a son of something, when you were called a son of something, it, it meant that you were so characterized by that person or trait that it defined you. Barnabas was so characterized by encouragement that they called him a son of encouragement. You must have been born from encouragement because that's all you do. You encourage contrasting. I, I love earlier reading about Jesus. So the apostles nicknamed Joseph, son of encouragement. A couple of those apostles had other nicknames. James and John, Jesus, I think, humorously nicknamed them Boanerges, which meant sons of thunder. He wasn't saying that their dad was named Thunder. He's not, he's not, they were probably loud. They were probably loudmouths. They were probably blowhards. So Jesus was probably helping them with their character a little bit and and humbling them, and called them, hey, sons of thunder, come here, and it stuck. I can imagine they loved it when they would say, hey, sons of thunder, come over here, and the apostles were like, sons of thunder, because they were loudmouths, probably. They were characterized by that. Well, now they're calling Joseph Barnabas. Maybe they've learned their lesson. They've, they're giving him an encouraging name. Luke's careful to note that his property belonged to him. Look in, in, in verse 37. It says, sold a field that belonged to him. There's no wasted words in the Bible. This property was, it was not communal property. It belonged to him legitimately. He wasn't saying it's wrong to own property. He wasn't being super spiritual by saying Barnabas' property really belonged to God anyway, although that's true. What he's saying is Barnabas' property belonged to him, and, and he took what belonged to him rightfully, and he sold it. And the implication here is he brought it willingly and trusted the apostles to do whatever they thought best. And laying it at the feet of the apostles, it reminds us really of laying 
a gift before a king and humbling himself and saying, this is an act of worship. Do with it what you will. So he's worshiping God. He's not worshiping the apostles. He's worshiping God as he places this money at their feet. And let's read in verse 1 and 2 of chapter 5 again. It tells us what Ananias and Sapphira did now in contrast to Barnabas' gift. It says, But a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought it only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. And what we see in this contrasting account is that Luke is showing us the effects of faking belief. So we saw two effects of authentic belief. Now we're going to see two effects of, of faking belief. First effect we see of faking belief is that faking belief is seen in devotion to self. Inauthentic belief, untrue belief, fake belief, if you will, it's seen in devotion to self. Before we go further, I want to, I want to draw your attention to a very significant linguistic sing- signal in this verse. Most of the English verses translate to original to say that, that he did it with the wife's knowledge that he kept back for himself some of the proceeds. And that's, that's a good translation, but I think it misses some of the nuances meant in the original word choice. And it's a word that's only used three times in the New Testament, twice here in this account, and then once in Titus. And over in Titus, it's, it's translated as pilfering. This is not a positive keeping back. This is an embezzling, is, is how the word is used. Strong concordance lists it right when it says to purloin, to embezzle, to, to withdraw covertly and appropriate to one's own use. They were keeping it back for their own use and hiding that they were doing that and pretending as if they were not. That's what that word means. I think the New Living Translation, although I wouldn't study from the New Living Translation, it can help bring to light passages like this at times and so it says he brought part of the money to the apostles claiming it was the full amount with his wife's consent he kept the rest this wasn't a case where he sold something and he said you know what um god how much should i give okay i'm going to give a portion and he told the apostles i'm, I'm giving 20 percent to you or I'm, I'm giving a portion to you i think god would have been pleased with that a genuine worship but this is he was deceiving he was lying he was doing it for show and they were doing it for their own reputation they were selfishly pretending to give an offering and sacrifice of worship that was generous and in fact it was it was not for God's glory it was for their glory it was not to elevate and worship God and exalt his grace it was to elevate and exalt their own name and the issue was that one gift was given to be seen by people and one gift was given as worship to God. You see, the issue here is the heart of the giving. That's, what's, that's what Luke's getting at, the heart. You see that Peter said in verse 3, but Ananias, Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart? Peter wasn't asking why Satan would be motivated to fill Ananias' heart. Peter wasn't confused as Satan wants to fill the hearts of, of people in the church to lie and deceive. He was asking Ananias, how, why did you allow Satan, to fill your heart to deceive? Why did you allow his satanic motives to fill your heart? Why were you motivated by fearing men instead of fearing God? Why were you being an instrument of Satan to deceive and be greedy and act like this worship was offered to God? Peter was saying Ananias was filled with this desire because he was bowing to Satan-inspired desires. Sometimes we do that too. We, we have a desire to please people and we bow. We fear man. We want to be seen favorably in the eyes of men instead of pleasing God and fearing God. And Peter told Ananias, this lie wasn't against people primarily. It was against who? Who does he say? Why have you conspired to lie to who? The Holy Spirit. As if the Holy Spirit didn't care about his motives. As if the Holy Spirit doesn't see, doesn't know, doesn't care about the heart behind our acts of worship. And Peter explains what I think is the key to this account. He says in verse 4, While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not your disposal? Why is it that you've contrived this deed in your heart? You've not lied to men but to God. He's telling Ananias, he said, you know, it would have been completely fine. This money was yours to begin with. This property was yours. You didn't have to sell it in the first place. Nobody was commanding you to do this. This is not what every Christian must do. This is not what you have to do to conform in this church, to look acceptable. Peter's saying, you don't have to sell your property. You can keep your property, and you could have kept it. Why didn't you just do that? 
You would have been better off. And, and then when you sold it, you could have just kept the money. It was always your own. Nobody's forcing you to sell it. It was your land. You should have done with it what you, what you wanted to. And so this isn't teaching socialism or communalism or communism. It's, it's Peter saying the idea of property ownership is legitimate. And people have a, have a, it's okay for people to own land and property and to keep that. There's nothing wrong with owning property and having money, even if not everybody does. But the concern is what, why we do what we do with what we have. The concern is why we do what we do with what we have. The heart of why we keep or sell or give or don't give is what's important. And that's important today in the church here. Why do you give money on a Sunday morning? Why do you not give money on a Sunday morning? Are you seeing that God has everything? Are you approaching that and saying, Lord, you own everything. God, how can I live for you? For some, that might mean that you need to start giving and you've not been giving. For others, it might mean that you need to repent because you've been given to be seen by the person beside you or somebody else, and, or you've been seen somehow to add your own merit. Now, it doesn't mean stop, but it means that we need to adjust our hearts. It's, God, I want to give out of worship. Now, sometimes we can use that as a cop-out for all many, very, very many areas in the Christian life. And we say, well, because I don't feel like doing it, I shouldn't do that because I don't want to be a hypocrite. <laughs> no. That's not the point of what God's saying. He's not saying, well, because you're a hypocrite, you should stop. No, stop being a hypocrite and, and, and please God with all that you have. Honor God with all that you have. Don't use the excuse because I don't feel like it, I'm not going to do it because it's not genuine. No, we want to see what is God, how does God call us to live? And then God, I'm going to worship you not feeling like it. That's legitimate, that's not hypocritical. God, I'm going to worship you when I don't feel like it because because, Lord, my life belongs to you, and so I want to worship you in spirit and in truth. And so, Lord, I'm going to make this sacrifice of praise. I'm going to make the sacrifice of giving, a sacrifice of living this way, caring for each other, sacrifice of fellowship when it really stinks sometimes and I don't like the person I'm in fellowship with. God, I'm going to live that way, not because I feel emotion, but God, I want to respond to you because, Lord, you've given me your grace and you've died. I want to give all to you. God is showing us here that he doesn't want hypocrisy cloaking itself as worship. It's not important that we conform to a certain set of behaviors. Everybody does what Barnabas did, but give from the heart is the issue. What God desires is to be giving to done as to him. And Ananias was lying to God. He wasn't doing this to worship God. He was pretending. He was worshiping his own desires. He was, he was faking devotion. He was faking belief. And it resulted in death. And that's the last main point we're going to look at very briefly this morning. It's faking devotion, inauthentic faith, if you will. Faking devotion brings death. It brings death. It's deadly. Don't fake. Don't fake your devotion. Don't fake your belief. If you're not a believer in Jesus Christ here today and you are pretending, let me encourage you, stop. God takes that seriously. Place your faith in Jesus. Receive the forgiveness of sins and then be freed to live out who you really are, warts and all, and say, thanks be to God, I am who I am and He's forgiven me for all this junk. Now, Lord, would you help me be different and live in light of who you've called me to be. Look in verse 5. It says, when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last and great fear came upon all who heard of it and everyone who heard of it. Think about that. Everybody who heard of it. Every, I bet a lot of unbelievers heard about this. Well, we know they did because in, in, in next week's passage it says that a whole lot of people refrained from joining the church. But believer and unbeliever alike, it, it, it says everyone who heard of it were filled with great fear. And then it says something else, another result. The young men rose up and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. Something a little odd here. You're wondering, why, why did they bury him right away? What's up with that? And how, how does his wife not know? Well, why didn't they have a funeral? Why wasn't the wife invited? How does she not know her husband had just died? Did nobody tell her? Was, were they just being jerks? Well, no, most likely in that day, see, that's what, how they would treat somebody who was considered condemned by God. He was an untouchable, and they would, someone condemned by God could not be honored. They didn't want to show honor to somebody who God had publicly dishonored. And so we read in verse 7, after about an interval of three hours, his wife came in not knowing what had happened. I can't imagine how the people in that room and wherever they were were feeling as she came in and Peter says, hang on. 
And he says in verse 8, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. That had been a gut punch for Peter, too. And Peter, Peter didn't kill her. Peter didn't kill him. God judged. God just used Peter to, to, to bring it to light. Peter wanted to give her a chance, most likely, to tell the truth without being pressured into it. And he was asking this question because it revealed her heart. Unfortunately, she was so deep in her lying and deceit that she, she stuck to her story. Peter said, how is it you've agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who buried your husband at the door, they'll carry you out. And she falls down, she's immediately, she breathes her last. Peter's dumbfounded. It's not that he doesn't understand what it means to lie and deceive. He was a liar and deceiver. And the fact that Peter himself, think about this, the fact that Peter himself is asking these questions, it shows that Fear of man and lying and deceiving is not the unforgivable sin because Peter was forgiven for just the same things. God forgave Peter. But in an ice and sapphire, they persisted in their lies even when confronted. So God strikes them down. And then, does this mean that God's going to kill all liars? No. I'm still standing. Does this mean that God kills everybody who fears man? My breath still comes out of my mouth. People who are deceitful or hypocritical in their worship, no, because God didn't kill Peter. And later on in Acts, he didn't kill Simon the magician who, who wanted to buy the gift of the Spirit so that he could make money. He was a deceiver and liar, but Paul condemned him and, and told him he better repent, and he does, and he's not killed. And, but here at the outset of the early church, what's God doing? He's demonstrating his power he is demonstrating his purity. He's demonstrating the kind of worship that's going to be received from his people. He's demonstrating that he's not about externalism and behaviorism and living in conformity to the community around you. He's about worshiping him from the heart. He's about having an authentic belief that results in worship. As we close, I believe that God wants to use this passage to purify his church just like he did when this first happened. God doesn't do this to make us think that he's going to smite us dead. No. Although we should ask ourselves, why does God not smite me dead? See, all of us deserve that. But instead, we receive mercy. Instead, if we understand the holiness of God, and if you, if you haven't gotten to hear the messages from Bruce Ware at our Renew Conference, I encourage you to go and listen especially to... Um, the glory of God, the greatness of God, the good, the, oh, the, seeing God's holiness really in who He is, that He's holy, and that He still takes holiness seriously. If you understand that, then you will begin to grasp the great grace that God has given to you and to me, that He doesn't condemn us, He doesn't slay us, He doesn't kill us. Instead, He killed His Son so that we might go free. He's showing us he takes hypocrisy seriously, but he's also showing us that he wants us to live free, to throw off every weight, to not live for ourselves in reputation. He wants to show us that sin can easily ensnare, but let's run with endurance the race set before us because he's died for us and now is resurrected because he's going to enable us and empower us to live for him by his Holy Spirit. Not to earn the favor of men, but to lay up for ourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust don't decay. Not to earn salvation, but because we want to live for him because we're his disciples and it, it's changed everything. It defines us now. Because he who gave his life for us, he gave his life to free us and enable us to live for him. And now we can live with the resurrected Lord empowering us to proclaim his name in all that we do. Amen? Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Lord, although this is a sobering word, I pray that there would be no condemnation this morning because, Jesus, you have done what the law could not do. You, you have done what we could not do in our own flesh and you condemned you condemned all those times and areas and places where we are not faithful in your own flesh. You took the punishment that we deserve. You freed us. 
by your great grace, you've called us, you've made us your own, you've adopted us, you've given us your inheritance and all the riches that belong to Christ Jesus, belong to us. And now the resurrected Lord is proof that our faith is not in vain. And so, God, I pray that there would not be condemnation, but I pray that that there would be a response and say, Lord Jesus, let us throw off every weight and every sin which so easily entangles and let us run with endurance for you who has set us free to run. And I pray that we might respond in worship to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, thank you for coming this morning. And if you haven't gotten to greet some of the our uh, old members here today or some of the previous members, please do that. Rob and Amy Garland, Scott Triolo in the back, Jim and Corey Britt. Thanks so much for being here with us, and we'll see everyone else here next week. Thanks.